On this episode, we're joined by Dr. Michelle LaRue at Dr. Michelle LaRue on Twitter. She loves it. And that also goes for her website, drmichellelarue.com. Michelle is one of my favorite kind of scientists. She's all about collaboration and bringing people together to not only communicate the important work, which is so often lost in the depths of academia, but also engaging with the public to encourage them to get involved. It's almost like the idea of open source science. She's spoken at the Earth Optimism Summit and the Idea City Conference, and now on the Antarctica Unfrozen podcast. <laughs> this episode is dedicated just about entirely to arguably the most famous Antarcticans, the Emperor Penguin. Michelle has found herself socializing scientifically with these animals and almost had me convinced to pack my bags and go live with the colony. Yeah, so what, what I do is I uh, use high-resolution satellite imagery, so think like Google Earth type imagery where it's really high resolution. You can see really fine detail you know, in the images, and that's the kind of imagery we use to study emperor penguins. Um, and the reason it's um, so great is because it not only allows us to actually tell how many birds there are at every colony, but then we can also see every colony around the continent, which is something that's previously been, you know, impossible. Um, so it's groundbreaking in, in both of those respects. We can see how many there are, and then we can also see every colony that exists, which is wonderful for conservation and management and understanding their ecology. That idea is when you sit back and just go, technology. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, oh my gosh, I never would have imagined, like in my wildest dreams, that I would be, you know, looking at emperor penguins from space as a job <laughs> like that's my job that was again kind I love of amazing idea of how jo- like some of our job descriptions have never have not been invented yet and i'm sure for you when you're at uni that was probably the case oh absolutely when i honestly like when i probably if i were to have asked myself as an undergraduate student if i even knew what remote sensing was i probably would didn't even know what it was <laughs> and uh yeah here i am looking at little itty bitty birds from space and figuring out where they are and why and how they relate to their environment is really great. That is uh, unreal, if I can say. I think, so you obviously, want, with this data, it's fantastic. And uh, just a quick question, are emperor penguins found all around the continent? They are, yep. And so they're they're actually the only penguin that never comes onto land. Um, there's technically two, uh, I guess, populations or two little colonies that will come onto land from time to time. But really, they only live either in the ocean or on the sea ice, which is exactly the way it sounds. It's ice that's frozen, frozen on the ocean. Um, and so that's how we know what we're looking at when we're looking at the satellite imagery. If we look for the, the fast ice, which is the ice that's literally fastened to the Antarctic continent, um, and that's where they live. And so we look for their colonies, we look for their guano stain on the ice in austral spring, so September, October time frame, and that's how we know who we're looking at is that the only thing that could possibly be are the emperor penguins, and that's because they live all around the continent on the fast ice. Wow. Okay. And so these emperor penguins, uh, they are pretty amazing. They live somewhat of a, of a lavish lifestyle, if you could call it that much, uh, maybe in the summer, but not so much in the winter. Uh, tell us about what it's like to be an emperor penguin uh, in six months of darkness. Man, um, you know, I can only imagine, really, because I've, I've never overwintered in Antarctica, so I have no idea what it's actually like to be there in the wintertime. But um, it's got to be a pretty tough 
lifestyle. Um, you know, you, you come back, if, you know, if you're an emperor penguin, you come back to the a colony, you know, on, again, on the fast ice and hoping to meet up with some of your mates who were hopefully there the, in the years before. Um, you find a mate and you breed in, you know, pitch black, basically. And then the... <laughs> Must be hard to do sometimes. Yeah, I mean, they, they do use... Um, um, I guess the, they, they can hear each other pretty well, which is how I believe they identify each other. Um, so, yeah, and they, um, so they, they do that, and the, you know, the chick, or sorry, the egg gets uh, laid in the middle of wintertime. Then it gets, you know, handed over to the male, and the females go off and, and forage for quite a while. And so during that time is when all of the males are huddled together for warmth, and yeah. I cannot... Yeah, I can't, I just I can't even fathom what that must be like. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's it's a harsh it's a harsh living. Because um, they're facing like two hundred k an hour winds, uh, ridiculously cold. Pick a number in the minus, and they could be in it. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, temperatures and yeah, and, and on top of all of that, it's not only keeping yourself alive, but it's keeping your egg alive too. You know, and they just balance it on their little feet, and they have you know a kind of a pouch to to keep it nice and warm, and and so they definitely have the capacity and have evolved to live in this incredibly extreme situation but it is very extreme like you said there's wind and cold and um you know they they huddle together and they'll kind of move around in the huddle um so that everybody can kind of stay warm at some point um and yeah it's it's definitely tough it's not easy and uh one of my sort of favorite things about emperor penguins is that they're actually quite large right yeah <laughs> they're yeah. like kind of mini human size yeah if you saw one in person he'd be he'd be up there on you somewhere yeah 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 they are they are big it's kind of funny actually when i when i talk to folks about uh you know emperor penguins just in general people are either surprised at how big they are or at how small they are like i've had several people think that they were like human size like several you know several feet tall you know over a you know meter tall and they're really only about a maybe a meter maybe a little bit higher than that but they're big. I mean, they're the biggest, they're the biggest penguins. Um, and yeah, so it, it is kind of like, oh, wow, you know, didn't realize how, how big they are. So people, I think, are oftentimes um, surprised by that. Absolutely. And I think uh, the other thing you've done some study in is uh, trying to figure out whether they go back to the same spot every year. And so what have you found there? So the only evidence we have there is we know that sometimes colonies will completely relocate but we don't know where. So for example, we'll see, um, again, on the high resolution imagery, you're just looking on the fast ice for that brown guano stain that indicates that a penguin colony is there. Um, and sometimes we'll see locations that had a colony and then the next year the colony is not there, like very, very obviously not there. Um, and it may be gone for a year or a couple of years and then they'll show back up again. So, so that suggests that they don't necessarily come back to the same spots because obviously you can't just create birds out of thin air. They had to have come from somewhere and they had to have gone somewhere. Um, so that's the evidence that we have for that. There's several different locations where we've seen that. Um, but as to the question regarding where they go or why, um, we don't have answers there right. yet. And we hope to... Uh, no leads just yet. Not yet. Yeah, we're hoping to, to address some of that. But the, really the only way to be able to do that is if we could put bands on them over a really long time frame to see where they go from year to year. Um, and so far, that's something we haven't been able to do yet. So. Right. And 
one of the things about Ibra penguins is that I believe they mate for life, do they? That is, that's false, actually. They don't. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. They actually have one of the higher divorce rates uh, in birds. Yeah, yeah. That's, an, that's kind of another one of those things that we tend to think. Um, and I think maybe it was the, the case um, in some colonies that, you know, the birds come back and, and um, mate. And I'm sure that there are several sets of, of mates that do that, probably. But yeah, actually, they'll... Um, yeah, it's called divorce. They'll divorce each other nice. more so than we thought. Yeah. No, I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. That's what we call it. Well, yeah. And it's, I mean, and if, if you think about it, it makes sense because they are living in such an, an extreme environment, right? I mean, your mate might not come back. Right. <laughs> they might go somewhere exactly. else. They might die. I haven't even appreciated that. Yeah. So they may not be able to mate for life. Yeah. So it's probably a good thing that they can move on. Yeah. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, I guess so. And so uh, we all know the film March of the Penguins. Mm -hmm. Could you maybe tell us a bit more about what the actual march is? What does that mean? Yeah, so in March of the Penguins, we learn that, um, you know, these these birds come back to the same location every year and they make this big, long march from, to and from the ocean, right. from their um, from their breeding habitat, which is again right next to the continent, and the reason the march can be so long is because of the sea ice extent. So if the sea ice, you know, the edge of the sea ice where it meets the water, is really far from the Antarctic continent, that can be you know a hell of a long march. Mm. Um, if the sea ice extent is in a little bit closer, then of course they obviously don't have to walk so far. Um, so that's where this idea that they you know, have to march to get out to the open ocean um, comes from. Um, I don't know that every colony does that lengthy of a march. Um, it depends where they are, right? That's what I think. Um, you know, that's another thing that we're looking into at the moment, actually, is to see how far away the ice edge actually is um, from at each colony, because it's going to vary depending, like I said, on the sea ice extent. And that varies regionally, and it varies every year as well. Absolutely. I suppose that's quite a good uh, time to come on on this idea of how uh, climate change is affecting the ice down there and how that's impacting the emperor penguins. Yeah, so uh, because they are so reliant on, on sea ice for their habitat, for you know their food resources, obviously less sea ice is going to be bad for emperor penguins. However, uh, we don't know exactly how the fast ice, which again is that ice that's what they need as a platform, we don't know exactly how that's going to change as, um, as the climate continues to change. But obviously warmer temperatures in the ocean and in the air are bad news for sea ice. Um, so there's been a few modeling studies that suggest the emperor penguin populations are going to decline pretty substantially by by the year 2100. Um, and so what we're doing right now is getting a little bit more information about how many penguins there are around Antarctica um, in every single population over the course of 10 years. And that will fill in a huge gap that we would need to continue to be able to do those modeling studies and understand a little bit more precisely what we might expect in the future. Have you seen some changes or uh, have data on the changes of the population dynamics over the last sort of 30-odd years, maybe? Um, so there's there's very few locations that have been studied it for that long of, of a time. So the March of the Penguins colony is probably one of the most important um, study species, or sorry, study populations for the species. How big is that population, if you happen to know? By yeah, it's, it's hover, it hovers around 3,000 breeding pairs or so. Right. But what's interesting about that colony, um, and it has intrigued us for a long time, and I'm relatively new to emperor penguin research, but um, that population actually crashed in the 1970s. It went from about 6,000 breeding pairs down to three, so it cut, cut in half over the course of just a few years. Um, and it's kind of hovered around that 3,000 mark 
ever since, mm-hmm. um, which is incredibly interesting. So again, uh, this this idea that potentially you know the birds died off, or perhaps some of them you know went elsewhere. Um, so it's been a a really important population though because they have been there. Researchers have been there studying them for such a long time. There's very few other places where we have that length of time to look at a single location. Um, and so what we're doing with our current work is to try to fill in the gaps as best we can over the course of at least the past 10 to maybe 15 years with the high resolution imagery. And hopefully that'll illuminate what's going on, um, you know, how many, how many times a population will kind of blink in and out, um, how populations may increase or decrease given, you know, the surrounding neighbors, that kind of thing. Um, so ho- I really think it's an exciting time to be doing work on, on emperor penguins. And so hopefully we'll gain a little bit more information about what's actually going on. Absolutely. And that's when you kind of forget how important those statistics are and the longevity of them just purely for the sake of comparison. I mean, science is not science without some basic comparison. And that's what you're kind of doing, right? Yeah, we're doing, I mean, it's, it's you know, we kind of had our first baseline information in 2009 um, with the paper that came came out it we've finally published it in 2012 but we were using imagery from 2009 Um, and so that gave us an idea of about how many birds you know emperor penguins existed as of 2009 and so now since that time imagery has been collected at all of those colonies you know over the past 10 10 years and some colonies have imagery that exists before 2009 as well Um, so yeah we will have for the first time the ability to actually say all right over a decade what do these birds do like how do these populations fluctuate um what how can we explain these fluctuations that kind of thing right yeah i mean that's uh, i'm stoked that we've touched on this because uh, for me it's like when you say uh you know the emperor penguins are like they're just they're just one uh, species of bird in antarctica but th- like you were saying with before and trying to understand necessarily maybe why that crash happened or something like that it relays the idea that Antarctica, rather, is so connected. You know, every everything in the ecosystem is working together as one and symbiotically. And that's something that we were trying to um, push home, is that the idea of, you know, all of these environments, not just for Antarctica, but uh, the whole globe and our world, uh, they're all connected, right? And just that example is, is one um, fine demonstration of how if you have something happening in one uh, population, you might be able to get clues as to what's happening in a different population or what's happening to a different species necessarily around the place. Yeah, and that's the thing that I am really excited about as as I move forward and do some of the research that I'm starting to work on here is to start, um, I kind of was describing this the other day as kind of like a three-dimensional puzzle. So, you know, every time you get more information about a species at the continental scale, which is something that's relatively new. So we have emperor penguins and Adelie penguins, you know, both at the continental scale. I'm working right now on Weddell seals and the next step would be crab eater seals, right? So each of those are kind of like a layer in this puzzle but they're all also connected, right? And so different um, environmental changes will impact each of those species differently because the environment, you know, affects them differently. But then they also interact with each other and with their prey. So there's a multitude of combinations that could be happening when we see any given environmental change. So say on the peninsula, we're seeing, you know, less sea ice that's going to have various impacts depending on the species. And so that's what I'm really interested in doing is is kind of looking at this at multiple scales to say, okay, in the Weddell Sea versus the Ross Sea versus the Amundsen Sea, what are the combinations of things that are happening as, you know, over time and then, you know, as the environment continues to change? Wow. And then I have a quick question, and it's the one that actually probably surprised me most and put quite a large smile on my face uh, because we're on the southern end of the planet obviously down in New Zealand 
why is it that penguins are just found in Antarctica? They're not just found in Antarctica. Oh. Yeah, they're found in the Southern Hemisphere. Okay, yeah. Southern Hemisphere. Yeah, yes. yep. Yep. Why the Southern Hemisphere? That is a fantastic question that I actually don't know exactly the answer to. I don't know why there – I'm sure there's multiple hypotheses and other people who would be able to answer yeah, that yeah. better than I can, but I don't know why. Like, they're exclusive to the Southern Hemisphere with the exception – so exclusive. Yeah, with the exception <laughs> of a few uh, uh, Galapagos penguins that will, like, hop over the equator um, from time to time. But, yeah, other than that, they're, they're in the Southern Hemisphere, and so – I guess my working hypothesis would be there there had to have been um, some sort of environmental thing going on as they were evolving that kept them in you know the southern hemisphere. So there's something that made you know losing flight um, and diving and swimming be the you know the adaptation or the advantage over you know flying and things. So um, so yeah, it's it's interesting, and I'm not exactly sure why they're only in the southern hemisphere. Well, we'll we'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so we've talked about what they get up to in the winter, and well, which is basically huddling for warmth and protecting their eggs and being good parents. The fathers, that is, and mums are out in the ocean trying to get some tasty food for them. Uh, what happens in the summer down there for emperor penguins? Yeah. So um, that that exchange happens a couple times through the winter. So the females will go out and they'll come back, and then the males will go out, and so they'll do this exchange. Kind Kind of through time to raise their chicks and so by the time um you know spring and summer come along the chicks are what i call the, like the adorable gray like they're you know kind of the steel gray and really fluffy and cute yes. um and you know so they're kind of on their own but they're still being fed by their parents so that continues into like november and december and then they start to fledge um and so that means they lose their kind of downy feathers and start to get their swimming feathers. So that's what happens with the chicks. Um, and then at some point in the summertime, the adults decide, all right, you guys are on your own. Yeah. You're good. We've raised you. Uh, yeah, out, yeah, yeah, out we go. Um, and so then they go out into the ocean and, of course, forage for months at a time and uh, come back. Well, they'll molt as well while they're while they're out um, out in the ocean. They'll find some ice flows and things, come onto the ice flows and um, and will molt at the time. So then the adults and will lose their feathers as well um, and get new a new set. Uh, and then, yeah, everybody's kind of out foraging in the ocean until the following, you know, end of end of fall, beginning of winter time where they do the process all over again. Awesome. And so emperor penguins are obviously uh, there in the in the food chain in the system in the ecosystem overall they're obviously not the apex predator at the top if i was an emperor penguin what would i be scared of um leopard seals for right. sure yep and i think probably Those orcas. Guys. Yeah, yeah exactly and i think probably orcas as well right yep oh my gosh yeah it scares me just to think about it yeah i know <laughs> yeah i mean both species le leopard seals and orcas are both beautiful and stunning um in their own right, um, but yeah, if I were Emperor Penguin, I would not want to be encountering one of them. Wouldn't try to be friends with them? No, no, definitely not. <laughs> Doesn't work. No. <laughs> not good for the health of the Emperor Penguin. Yeah. Absolutely not. <laughs> uh, Michelle, I think you've, you've obviously have a lot of passion, not only for your work, but for science communication. And seeing as this is a science communication project, I mean, what what do you kind of uh, what motivates you uh, to communicate all this important science that you're doing? Is it just that you believe that it's really important and that we need to know about it? Um, I think what motivates me to do science communication is the fact that it's there's so much. Like I I think what happens is I reflect on the little piece of information that I have and that I know about the world, you know, and in this case, emperor penguins. Like I know a lot about this one little thing and there's so much out there to know about 
physics and astronomy and biology and cellular biology and like all of these other things. And so um, I think what motivates me is to get people excited about the things that I'm excited about in in the hopes that not necessarily that everyone is going to, you know, love emperor penguins or want to become an, a, a biologist, but to just say become an emperor penguin. Yeah. <laughs> That's well that that could be a, this whole other set of yeah. of yeah, wishes, yeah. Um but to just I guess excite excite people in the way same way that I'm excited to try to explore and, and learn about nature because it's not just about um, you know getting people excited like I said about Antarctica or the Southern Ocean or emperor penguins but it's to kind of spark that curiosity about other things then too so if emperor penguins or the Southern Ocean can kind of be that conduit to you know students and and really anyone who's willing to listen to be excited about and be curious and to think about things critically, that's what gets me excited and passionate to to kind of share what I have to say. Absolutely. I think well I think we can both agree that that's probably where you are not only um, connecting with nature in this in this form Antarctica and those that call it home, but also with people back when we're up here and trying to trying to get them to relate to Antarctica and, and see how important it is just to our daily lives anyway. Well yeah and it's it's Antarctica is one of those things I've kind of taken it on as a um, it's a it's a great challenge, right? Because for a lot of people, you know, the vast majority of the world, Antarctica, I think of kind of as this abstract idea, right? Um, I'm originally from the U.S., which is almost as far from Antarctica as you can get, right? Um, and so, how do you, if you're, you know, anyone in the northern hemisphere, really, like, how do you? make that connection like why should I care about what's going on in Antarctica it's far away I'll never go there I'll never see a penguin like there's all kinds of reasons that it would be you know difficult to really make that connection so I've kind of taken that on as a as a challenge to um I guess alert people to like hey no guess what there's all kinds of things going on in the southern ocean in particular where we do have a direct impact and what goes on there has an impact on us as well so yeah my, and my favorite one was uh, i was talking to a friend about this this trip and he was like oh antarctica like it goes it goes mars first and antarctica second and then somewhere on the equator third yeah <laughs> No, it's true. It's funny, actually. I have I, I get two uh, responses when I tell people that I do work in Antarctica. I either get that. They're like, oh, I can't believe you do work there. I want to know more about it. And then there's another group of people who are like, you're nuts. Why would you want to go there? You're an alien. That's it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you are out of your mind. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I love all you Antarctic people. <laughs> yeah, I, I love Antarctic people, too. And I love I love working with the, the you know people I'm able to work with, too. It's it's I'm very privileged. Oh, fantastic. Well, I think that's uh, an awesome note to end on, Michelle. Thank you so much for uh, your time. And uh, I look forward to catching up with you and seeing more of your science in the future. And best of luck with your new move down here at UC. Wonderful. Thank you for having me. No worries. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you so much for joining us and listening in. I hope you enjoyed the episode and do check out some of the others. As always, it'd be great to hear from you. So leave a review or subscribe or get in touch anyway. More info about the episode can be found in the show notes, so feel free to explore. Thanks again, and here's to Antarctica.